And somebody burned that shit down. And I'm like, it's like a fucking riot out here. It felt like World War Three was breaking out. I feel like this is what you want work to be like. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Anyways, I ended up like, I tried to bail and then I got nervous and I woke up. So Interesting. Anyways, that was my fucked up, ridiculous dream. And it was so vivid. Like, I could just see this shit, like, happening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of 4.30 in the morning. This is your boy, Ben. And Pat is back as well. How you doing, Pat? I'm back in the studio. 76. Yes, sir. 76. you have anything for 76? I'm pretty sure. Now, I don't think I'm going to get this wrong this time. 70, I don't know. 76 on the Pittsburgh Steelers is Chukwuma Okorafor. Is he? He's a tackle, isn't he? Or is he a guard? Or is he a center? Definitely not a center. Not a center? Um, I feel like he's a right tackle. I think he is the right tackle, I believe so. Okay, yep. very good. Yep, he's he's not bad. He's I've pretty, heard the name he's, before. He's pretty good. He's not terrible. He's one of the better ones on the line last year, at least. See, that's not saying a whole lot. It's not saying a whole lot, but hey, he was there. He, he He's pretty good. He's not terrible. I don't have any players for 76. It's all right. You got, how many news stories you got today? Um, I brought three to the studio today. I think I have three, too. You can get started if you want. Yeah, this one that I'm going to run first. This one comes from my favorite UPI Odd news, and this is one that I had prepared last week, but I didn't make it in the last week's episode. But I still think it's a pretty good news story. Sounds good. And this is going to cover yet another world record. This time, however, David Rush isn't involved in this one, and this is a record wow. that he's never going to be able to break. Never is he going to be able to break this world record. However, I would say this one probably promotes STEM education a lot more than David Rush ever has. <laughs> All right. And the headline reads: "World's longest wooden roller coaster." Breaks its own record. I'm sorry. Okay. World's longest roller coaster breaks wooden, its own. Wooden oh, roller wooden. coaster. Okay. Yep. The world's longest wooden roller coaster breaks its own record. Officials with an Ohio theme park said a wooden roller coaster, officially dubbed the world's longest, has broken its own record by getting two feet longer. Hmm. The Kings Island Amusement Park in Mason announced that the Beast, yeah. which is recognized by Guinness World Records as the longest ro- wooden roller coaster, went from 7,359 feet of track to 7,361 feet thanks to recent renovation work. The park said upgrades to the coaster included a steeper first drop. Cool. The Beast was named the world's longest wooden roller coaster when it opened in 1979 and has held on to the distinction ever since. Kings Island is scheduled to open for its 50th season, April 16th. Now, I think that's a pretty interesting news story. Now, you, it's awesome. you've ridden the beast before. Yes. I've ridden the beast as well a few times. It's one of my favorite roller coasters ever. It's fantastic. It's easily in my top five. Did you ever ride the Son of Beast? No, I never got to. See, I got to ride that before they it tore it down. Was it it was absolutely amazing. It was the tallest wooden roller coaster in the world. It was over 205 feet or something ridiculous. It was like, like, I've it, seen it. I was there. I it was like 240 running. feet. Holy shit. It was tall shit, and it had a loop in it. Yeah. And, the, well, the reason they, they tore it down is because somebody fell out of that loop, I'm pretty sure. Something like that. Something happened. There are a lot of incidents with it where, like, trains would crash into each other and shit. Yeah, they had a lot of problems and with it. And one of the, well, I guess one of the bends was, like, ridiculously rough. And it would, like, fuck, it would, like, give people whiplash and shit. Yeah, it was gnarly. But it was a hell of a ride. It was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. But the Beast isn't, the Beast is one of the greatest. Like, so you look at it over the map just to see what it is, and it's oh, like, yeah. this is a lot of straightaways, like, who? How could this be that fun? Yeah. I had no idea how much fun speed is on a roller coaster. Oh, it's the best. And the first time that we went to Kings Island, we went, we had like a two day, we did like a two day trip. Me, my dad and my brother did. And we pulled in there like on a, like a weekday night and it had been like thunderstorming the entire day. So we were like, well, let's just pull up to the park, see what we're dealing with, basically. And we pull up to the gate, and the brother was starting the break, but it was like 8 o'clock at night. I think the park was open until 11. Nobody was there. Perfect. And we're like, it looks like they might be open. So we kind of walk up, we throw our passes, and like, yeah, you know, we're open. You guys can walk around. I don't know what kind of rides they're going to be running, but we just like, okay, great. We can at least get a lay of the land, basically. Sure. And we look up, and their brand new roller coaster is called the Diamondback, which is like, it's like a miniature version of the Millennium Force, but it's almost better than the Millennium Force. And it's like, they just sent a train up. What was that about? And then they sent another train up. And it's like, oh, there's people on that. And it's like, oh, it's just got to be employees just riding it just to get the ride shut down for the night. And we walk by, and it's like, this kind of looks open. So we walk through it, and it's like, oh, shit, it's open. So we hopped on, and we're like, oh, my God, we're riding this thing. <laughs> just walked right on. And then we walked off again, and then we walked right back on, and we rode it again. Awesome. And then the third time coming around, they were like, you know, if you guys want to ride it again, and you got nobody lined up behind you and your thing, and there was, like, nobody in the park, just just stay on. You don't, you don't need to get off. So we literally <laughs> rode it, like, six or seven times in a row. It was ridiculous. That's so 
sweet. Then we did the same thing with the beast. Nice. We literally rode the beast, and it was dark out. It was rainy. It was oh, foggy. Oh, that's even better. It was foggy. We had no idea what the fuck was going on, because it is like a dark part of the park. Yeah. And it's a haunted part of the park as well. Yeah. We rode that thing like probably three or four times, and we're like, this is so fucking awesome. the greatest ride of all time, basically. Hell yeah. So, that's that's awesome. King, that's my King's Island story. Anyways, that took up a lot of time, but what no, do you that's have okay. today? What do you have today? So, first one. It's kind of funny. It's a little bit older, but um, I'm pretty sure we did not do this one. Okay. Because we had a couple funny COVID-related news stories. Sure. I'm pretty sure we did not do this one. Okay. This is from AP News. This is from April 3rd. Uh-oh. Man in Germany gets 90 COVID-19 shots to sell forged passes. <laughs> <laughs> A 60-year-old man allegedly had himself vaccinated against (laughs) COVID-19 dozens of times in Germany in order to sell forged vaccination cards with real vaccine batch numbers to people not wanting to get their vac- to get their vaccinations themselves. The man from eastern Germany, city of Magdeburg, whose name was not released in the line with German privacy rules, is said to have received up to 90 shots against COVID-19 at vaccination centers in the eastern state of Saxony for months until criminal police until the criminal police caught him this month, the German news agency DPA reported Sunday. How did he get this, away with this? This is written for that really long. weird. Yeah, it's absolutely hilarious. Like, how, like I feel like he would have to go to a lot of different sites yeah. so they wouldn't notice him. Or maybe he's a master of the skies. Now, if you get the Pfizer, you got to get two shots. I think the same thing with the Moderna too. So, is he getting two shots? Like, does 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 like a full vaccination count as one, or are they counting one shot for is is one shot? You, you get what so I'm we're saying? saying that this guy could have been poked 180 times. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, I don't really know how they're doing that. I don't know, but... Because to be fully vaccinated is two shots. Yeah. Am I, am like, I correct? Like a bunch of boosters and shit. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I... Uh... The suspect was not detained, but is under investigation for unauthorized issuance of vaccination cards and document forgery, DPA reported. He was caught at a vaccination center in Elenburg in Saxony when he showed up for a COVID-19 shot for the second day in a row. Police confiscated several blank vaccination cards from him and initiated criminal proceedings. (laughs) See, the crime is definitely going to be forgery. It's not going to be him just getting... How is he not dead? (laughs) I don't know. It's unreal. See, we still don't really exactly. That's a medical anomaly, in my opinion. I don't know if the vaccine can necessarily kill you. I just think yeah, it, maybe not. Maybe this doesn't serve a purpose after you get it so many times. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. That's a lot of. It's just a lot of shit to put in your body. I'm surprised that more people don't do that here because there are lots of people that just don't give a shit. They're just like, "Fuck it, I don't care." Right. Stick me with it, and that's fucking hilarious. So that's one of the better news stories that we run. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Do you have anything more with that one? Nope, that's it. You can go ahead. That was a great news story. We have to we have to follow up on that one to see what happens because, like I <laughs> yeah. said, I, I can't be it can't be a criminal charge just getting a bunch of shots, you know? Right. Unless they're gonna say that he was wasting the vaccine, maybe. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine getting that thing shot up ninety times. This in is my unbelievable. Body. Like when you showed up, wouldn't they notice? Like you'd think they'd have some bruises. Ninety that is, shots. That is true. Like nobody noticed this. Yeah, that is true. Like damn, that's ridiculous. Anyways, my next one is kind of ridiculous as well. And this one's going to come from WRBL.com. Sure. And this one's going to be out of Alabama. Alabama woman plans to sue after construction company mistakenly demolishes house. Think about that for a <laughs> oh, second. Oh, no. And this happens. Like You would be surprised how many times that this actually happens. Jennifer Pulliam knows who mistakenly demolished her house in Alabama earlier this year. But while the mystery is solved, the legal battle is just beginning. Over a weekend in January, someone came onto Pulliam's property next to the Mobile Fairgrounds and tore down a home that had been in her family since the 1960s. Oh, no. I moved here when I was approximately 10 years old. This is my grandparents' old home place. They bought it in 1965, and it's been in our family ever since, she said. Pulliam, who lives and works in Leakesville, Mississippi, eventually got word about the demolition through a family member. They didn't know that I was unaware of it until they saw the news story, and then they contacted me, she said. I cried for two days, Pulliam added. I was devastated. Other family members saw the story, which aired on WKRG, and contacted Pulliam with the name of the company seen on the property the weekend in January. Pulliam said mobile police investigators contacted the construction company, and the owner confessed to demolishing the house, saying it was a mistake. I was not happy because they said they could not arrest them because there was no malicious intent. I would just have to sue them in civil court, Pulliam said. Ugh. 
Poyam, who had not publicly named the company on advice of her attorney, said she is planning to file a lawsuit. She said the company's owners have not contacted her to offer an apology or anything else. Damn. <laughs> As for what kind of damages she hopes to recover, Poyam didn't immediately have an amount in mind. I'm not sure what they will come up with or how they will come up with it. The house, to me, is priceless. This is like her family estate, basically, just gets demolished uh, on a mistake. She should file for uh, what that one lady <laughs> what that did. One woman did, yeah. Annoyance. Annoyance. <laughs> was that two weeks ago or was that last week? I can't it remember. It might have been last week. That was a great one. But, um, yeah, I and I've seen these news stories before where these guys have shown up and demolished uh, the long house. Oh, it's terrible. Like, the one time, I think it was in Texas, there was a similar situation. The guys used Google Maps instead of checking the actual address. They're like, yep, this looks like the place. Just started going at it without verifying <laughs> anything, and it was not not even the right house. And this is obviously a similar situation that happened, where they, they had to have had an order and for an area, a house in the area, and they just weren't paying attention to the details and just like, fuck it. Thank God nobody was in the house. Exactly. No, it sounded like maybe nobody was living. Maybe there at the it time. was vacant. Yeah. Okay. yeah, but still, it was in the family. Like, yeah, definitely. a lot of people keep house that they have plans for. It could, and it could probably be, a huge asset for for these people. Exactly, I'd be suing up the wazoo. Now, I can't believe the company wouldn't apologize or wouldn't offer to fix this because you don't want to, you don't want to go to court for this. You want to fix it immediately if this yeah, is your fuck definitely. up. Definitely. Now, what also happens too is these people they try to justify it, like they try to justify it, like ah, yeah. you know, it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever. But there really isn't anything that can be. Like you're in trouble. If you do this right. shit, you're you're fucked. It's over for you. Like that dude should he get should. fired because he <laughs> skipped a couple steps. I think exactly. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was a pretty funny news story. That's really all I have. With oh, that could one. you imagine? I would be. I would be. Could you imagine just going home from work and your house <laughs> is just gone? Well, I mean that's happened to you, kind, kind of. of. But but yeah, that would be. And especially if it was just like, oh, fucked up that one. Oh well. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> right. basically what they're saying. Right. Anyways, that's really all I have with that one. I thought that was a pretty funny news story, though. It is pretty funny. What else do you have today, sir? This one's pretty funny. Um, this is this one's actually older as well, but I found it funny. I'm pretty sure we did not do this one yet. Sure. This is from Sky News. This is from back in February okay. of this year. Religious artwork removed after local priest and businessman found among holy images. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, okay, let's get into okay. this one. Um, a religious work of art has been removed from an Italian basilica after a local priest and the businessman who commissioned the painting were found among the holy images. <laughs> Dude, I couldn't believe this one when I saw it. I'm like, there's no way. What is this? The painting was gifted to the Cathedral of Canossa in Puglia. Southern Italy, but caused controversy upon further inspection. The image featured the boss of the charity, which commissioned the $17,000 painting of St. Sabinus meeting St. Benedict, as well as the priest who runs the cathedral. Artists wanted to portray two authoritative representatives of the community. People shared their own reproductions of the artwork online, featuring other famous faces inserted in onto the canvas. Wait, what, where, this Gui- was in a basilica? Yeah. Oh my god. Giuseppe Antonio Lamasio, the artist behind the painting, told local media that he claims full autonomy in my interpretive choices. He said the choice of the subjects represented in the composition was the result of free artistic interpretation dictated by the need to tell the story of the devotion of the saints. (laughs) He decided to portray the two authoritative representatives of the local community. The artwork will be revised. He said during the process they had both asked not to be portrayed, but it seems he tried to make them less evident by adding a COVID mask face mask to Sergio Fontana, president of the Archaeological Foundation of Canosa. What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and the hiding father of Felix Baca behind the cross. <laughs> I gotta show you this photo of it. It's fucking hilarious. Look at this thing. That needs to be the cover photo for our for the podcast Facebook page. Oh, it's absolutely hilarious. That is one of the fun. Is like there's just, no way this is real. There is so much going on with that news story. <laughs> now, it sounds like this he's, artist... He's going to revise the work before it goes back on display. So this artist did this on purpose. Now, this isn't a cheap thing to do. Like, this is apparently a famous painting of a saint, of two saints meeting or something like that. And 
Like it, like he charged seventeen thousand euros for this. Oh my god! Okay, or whatever the currency is there. Like it's a lot of money, and he literally put these faces of these people <laughs> into the painting, and he like insisted upon it. Is that's the thing I can't figure yeah. out? This artist was like, "This is yeah, this is my interpretation <laughs> of this. We have to have these two guys in the mix on this one." I don't know, man. That was fucking hilarious. Yeah, that, that was a really that was one, one of the most ridiculous things I've read. Yeah, we need to keep up with that one. We need to see. There's a lot going on with that. That's all I can really say. Yeah, you can go ahead to get another one. Yeah, I got one more. I'm going to try this one out of the way real quick. This one's pretty funny, though. This one comes from MotorTrend.com. Okay. Autonomous car pulled over by cops makes a run for it. <laughs> As self-driving cars begin to enter the mainstream, it remains something of an open question. Who is at fault or held liable in an accident, for example? The car maker? The owner of the car? What happens if or when an autonomous car commits a moving violation on public roads? The San Francisco Police Department unwittingly became party to this thought exercise when one of its units tried to pulling over a GM Cruise autonomous vehicle and the observer, the observers who posted the interaction onto Instagram points out the officers sure looked confused. The cruise vehicle, which is based on the Chevrolet Bolt electric hatchback, initially stops for the officers attempting the, the traffic stop. Amusingly, not off, not long after one of the officers exits the police car to approach the self-driving Bolt, the Chevy, ahem, bolts. This is written terribly. <laughs> slowly driving through the intersection before pulling over again and activating its flashers. The police catch up to the Bolt, which presumably pulled over a second time because cops activated their emergency lights and proceeded to walk around the now-parked Chevy while making calls on their phones. Meanwhile, bystanders seem to enjoy the spectacle of it all. So uh, it goes on a little bit, but so basically... There, there's nobody in this car. Yes, this is a self-driving car with nobody in it. The cops didn't know what the fuck to do. We didn't... We, okay, okay, hold on a minute. Now, I've, I've heard of self-driving cars. Yes. Right. Apparently they're street but legal in San Francisco. How is there nobody in it? Who started it? And who... It sounds like this cruise company this kind of, kind of like controls these things. Like remotely? Yes. Oh. But it also sounds like this is driven by GPS exclusively. Like there's not someone actually controlling it. It's not like a remote control thing. It's all computer so, programmed. So are they just testing this thing? I have no idea. Because why... Wait, unless it's what's doing, the point? Unless it's doing a mission. Okay. But what's funny is the cops pull it over and they're like, well, what, 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 what's the protocol when we pull over a car <laughs> right. and there's no driver? There's going to have to be some new laws made for this shit, man. Exactly. And they pulled it over. And this is a serious, like, it's a good thing that they pulled this car over because it was driving at night without headlights on. Which, sure, the car yeah. doesn't need to see, but everybody else needs to be able to see the damn car. So that's a completely justifiable reason to pull a well, car over, I, in my opinion. I feel like it would need to see because... If it's GPS driven, though. Yeah, but how accurate and how much is this GPS showing? Is it showing the cars around it? These GPS things are ridiculous. I don't know how the hell they work. Like, it's one... Like, I could see if they had, like, a real-time, like, satellite image of, you, like, sure. the, the car so you can see what's around it. Uh, otherwise, you'd, you'd think there were cameras around the outside of it to I think see there everything. are, but there's also, like, sensors. Like, yeah, have definitely. you ever seen the videos where the self-driving car is driving by a cemetery and it stops because it thinks a pedestrian's yeah. there and it's a ghost of a pedestrian that they stop for? Yeah. That could be like, how they do it. Like the te like the Teslas. They actually have cameras, like, yeah. on the side doors. Yeah. So if somebody hits their door with their, with you know, with their car, sure, the Tesla will catch your ass because they have cameras on the side doors. That's pretty crazy. And they actually, I, I listened to a, a Joe Rogan episode with Elon Musk. They actually created a new technology to where, you, you ever seen those cars where around the side you see the sensors? They look like little buttons. I don't know if I've actually like seen them around, in person. I've seen them before on cars. Okay. Well, Tesla completely eliminated that and put the sensors behind, like, into, like, the body to where you Ooh, can't see them. That's stealthy. And they ended up, you know, coming up with that because before the sensors weren't able to read through the body of the car. I guess that makes sense. Through the, you know, the aluminum or whatever they build for the, the body of no, the car. I don't know what they use. Yeah, I don't know what they we'll use have to either, get Elon on the show to talk about that. Definitely. Anyways, it's really all I have with that one. It's kind of a funny news story, though. Yeah. We'll see if that one comes together. It was kind of choppily written and choppily... It, it'll, it'll come together. And choppily read. Anyways... What else do you have? Do you have any more news? I have one more. It's quick. It's really stupid. Awesome. This is from our favorite UPI news. Perfect. By our favorite Ben Hooper. This is April 11th, 22. That's recent. Yes. World's largest belt buckle unveiled in Texas. How did I miss this one? I feel like I was on that <laughs> website today. I didn't see this one. A Montana-based company broke a Guinness World Record when it unveiled a giant belt buckle measuring nearly 15 feet across in Texas. <laughs> 
Montana Silversmiths, based in Columbus, Montana, had the belt buckle shipped to its Dallas showroom in four parts, and the pieces were then assembled into the world's largest belt buckle. You know, I feel like they could have done something like this with the giant pay-in, remember? Yeah, that was a pretty <laughs> funny one. But I guess that's one full piece of cast iron, though. Yeah, that's true. This... Which which is honestly a little bit more impressive. Impressive than, than a belt buckle. Could you imagine driving down the road, you just see a giant belt buckle on a flatbed? It'd be funny. Yes, definitely. But, but I would be more impressed if they did that, if it was all one piece. But a belt buckle has moving parts, though. True. Every belt buckle, unless it's like one of those weird-ass ones, there's probably going to be more than one piece, you would think. You think? Have you ever bought a belt buckle? I've bought belts with buckles on them. Me too. I feel like every one of them has been at least two or three moving moving parts, I feel like. I need to get a new belt. Okay. It's time for a new one. I'll tell you what, I'll do some research. If you need a new belt, tweet us at 30 in the. Or if you are selling belts and you've got some good options, please tweet us at 30 and then let us know. Thank you. Guinness World Records confirmed the massive belt buckle, a replica of the company's most popular buckles, measured 10 feet and 6 inches tall and 14 feet and 6.4 inches wide. Enough to claim the record. The Big Horn Trophy buckle features the silhouette of a cowboy with golden flowers, silver stars, and the company's silver signature filigree. We are paying homage to the quintessential piece of the West and the cowboy way of life. Judy Wagner, Montana Silversmith's chief marketing officer, told Guinness World Records, The buckle is a perfect way to celebrate the industry and come together to showcase our lifestyle in iconic, in iconic fashion. It's the culmination of a lot of people's hard work, and it's amazing, Wagner said. That's the end of the article. I guess belt buckles are kind of iconic with the Wild West. Fucking America, man. Yeah. And Montana, people forget that there was like Wild West shit going on across the entire West. It wasn't just like Texas oh, yeah. or right, Arizona. Definitely. And Montana was no no slouch in that department either. I mean, you got Montana, Nevada. I mean, yeah. all them places, man. The Dakotas even. There was, there yeah. was shit going on. There was shit going I think on. We did, I think we did a story a while back with, uh, with Montana and the Wild West. I feel like there was a good story that we did. A while ago. I can't remember what the details were. Well, I know we definitely talked about it a little bit in the Skinwalker episodes. Yeah, we did <clears> In well. Utah. Yeah. Anyways, that was a pretty good news story. I don't have any more news. Do you have any more news? Nope, that's it. Perfect. Now, so we're going to be moving on to our main topic. Pat, what is our main topic? Because this will be your episode. I think that's debatable. But this is a topic that Ben picked out, and I really liked it, though. I feel like this is one we could do a lot with over several episodes, even probably. Definitely. You know... We have talked about redoing episodes, like yeah, we, part twos. We have not done one. Except for Alien. Except for Aliens. <laughs> except for aliens. Yeah. But this is going to be another people episode. Today we're going to be talking about like lesser known influential people. People that had an influence on the world. Yep. But aren't people that you would immediately think about. Like, right. And I saw, I've seen lists about who the most influential person in the world, in world history has been. And there's a lot of debate about it. Sure. A lot of people will say Jesus, which is probably the one that I would agree with. Definitely. Le- recently though, they're kind of saying Muhammad. But when you look at the reasoning behind it i think they're trying to be they're just trying to be anti-christian that's probably is where that that sentiment's coming from sure i would say and i'm reading that book that you got me a little bit and it gets into the rise of the muslims in arabia in the seventh century it's really interesting shit Mm. i would say muhammad is in the top three but i think jesus the just he's around for longer the movement got a lot bigger basically sure which is probably why he would be considered one but i mean scientists would be considered world leaders would be considered so definitely we're not gonna be talking about any of those people today though we're gonna be talking about some different people that most people probably wouldn't think about you know what i mean well i have like scientists and shit like that there's just people that have done big things that you've probably never heard of sure well that's kind of what we're getting at yeah lesser known yes so do you want to get started because i feel like we're going to be going in two different directions with this one i'm gonna be doing mostly history that's good but anyways well this this guy's kind of old have you ever heard of sir thomas brown can't say that i have so this guy was born in 1605 wow he died in 1682 so it's a little while ago 17th century now i'm not going to get into his whole early life but basically this guy has an incredible remarkable mind sure <clears throat> and he stretches his curiosity far and wide this guy was basically a doctor, but along with being a doctor, he investigated many fields of study, like science, religion, history, philosophy, and he had a lot of published works, too, and he wrote, I think, like, seven or eight books. Okay. He did so much shit. He was a antiquarian. He was a collector of a bunch of random shit, and he was a zodiographer, which is a term that he created himself, which is somebody that... Maps stars? Maps constellations? That's what I thought originally, but according to him, it's somebody that learns a lot of shit about animals apparently zodiographer yeah z-o-d-i-o-g-r-a-f-e-r g-h no g-h-e-r 
I guess if he claims it's it, this is how it is, that's what it is, then. But here's the thing. He created a hell of a lot more words. In fact, the reason why he is, well, he's well-known, but he's lesser-known. Sure. Is uh, he had huge contributions to writing and the English language in general as a whole. Okay. He wrote in a very clever, kind of humorous, subtle, kind of like subtle humor. Brown appears at number 69 in the Oxford English Dictionary's list of top-cited sources. He has over 775 entries in the Oxford English Dictionary of first-word usage and is quoted in a total of 4,131 entries of first evidence of a word and is quoted 1,596 times as first evidence of a particular meaning of a word. So examples of his coinages are so many words that we use today, like fucking... Fucking is one like, of his words. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> no, but like um, carnivores, coexistence, coma, composite, computer. He likes the C's. Electricity, hallucina- hallucination, gymnastics, generator, ferocious, holocaust, migrant, mucus, prairie, prostate, ultimate, suicide, can veterinarian. We, can we back up real quick? This is 17th century <laughs> holocaust is one of his words. Yes. Because I thought that was a biblical word. Unless maybe maybe that word got translated sure. into from the old right. Hebrew. Okay. Approximate coexistence like just all kinds of words that we use today that's pretty interesting i've never heard of this guy before and his literary style is still you know still prevalent today in today's writing so that is sir thomas brown that was a pretty interesting one yeah i've never heard of him either i'm gonna have to look him up and do a little bit more research on that guy that was pretty good definitely now my first one is a little bit different we're gonna be going to the fifth century in an era that might not have even actually happened well, we probably think it's just the happened. Dark Ages. This is the beginning of the Dark Ages. This is going to be post or right around the fall, the like the official fall of the Roman Empire when Alaric sacked Rome. But the Roman Empire still existed afterwards. It was just kind of like a Visigoth. The Visigoth showed up and kind of took some shit. Mm-hmm. Everybody makes a bigger deal out of it than it actually was. Okay. But what's weird and what's really weird about Rome, the city of Rome in general, is even after the Roman Empire stopped using Rome as the capital, and they moved to a bunch of different cities afterwards, and then eventually Constantinople became the capital, Rome remained the center of the Catholic Church, like, immediately. Like, St. Peter ended up there, according to the stories, basically. And Constantinople is now Istanbul in Turkey, correct? Correct. That was the capital, or the main capital of the Roman Empire, and there were points where there were two capitals, or even three capitals, but that was, like, the main capital ever since Constantine. But Rome remained the center of the Catholic Church for pretty much all of history, which is really strange. Now, this is going to be 5th century. This is going to be Pope Leo I, who lived in Rome, who lived around 400 A.D. until... 461 AD and was the Pope from age 40 until his death at age 61. So he had about a 21 year reign as the Pope. The Pope just being the Bishop of Rome is basically what it was, but the Pope. Right. So this guy is well talked about even today. Like even the, the Pope and what, what, what is Benedict called? Benedict the 16th called Benedict the 16th. He's the Pope Emeritus. Cause he retired like shit, like 10 years ago from the I thought papacy. he died. He is still alive. He's still alive. He, that's the really weird. It's I've never heard of a Pope retiring. It hasn't happened in 600 years before Benedict did. It was just like, it was a complete out of nowhere thing. Yeah, that's weird. And so we technically got two popes flying around. I guess that's where that weird-ass movie came from. Because you still got Benedict. He's still alive. Like, he's really old now. Yeah. But, like, what what do you, what do you do? You were the pope. And he was like, (laughs) fuck it, I'm done. And he just, like, kind of lives a quiet life now. Anyways, he claims that, I guess he told us, like, scholarly shit and whatever. I think he's still, like, Mm. lucid and everything. Okay. But he claims that this Pope Leo the first guy is one of the, like, the most important popes in the history of the Catholic Church. Mm. And what's interesting about this guy, the reason why I'm talking about him, is back in this era of history, the Western, I guess, Italy, uh, Macedonia is in the mix. All those countries, like... Central Europe, I guess. Maybe not Macedonia, but Italy, Hungary, Austria. The countries that we know as these countries was just like basically like a wasteland of chaos. You had a bunch of different the Visigoths, a bunch of different tribes are like trying to like fight for power in this area. And the Huns were in the mix, mm. including Attila the Hun. Mm. 
They did some. They did some nasty shit. Well, they kind of did. They kind of did, and they just kind of showed up in history out of like Asia Minor, basically, or somewhere in Asia. We really, really don't know where the hell they came from. But they were the best organized, the most vicious group back then, and they were like really starting to take some land. Now they didn't last very long in history, but they were gonna take Rome. And if they took Rome, they could have immediately crushed the Catholic Church. Like the Catholic Church might not exist today mm. if Attila the Hun actually sacked Rome. The reason why he didn't is then Emperor, I can't remember who the Holy Emperor was of Rome, was trying to stop Attila from doing shit, basically, in Italy. He wanted to keep Attila out of Italy, basically, or what we know as Italy. It wasn't Italy back then. But he sent an envoy out of, like, diplomats to try to meet with Attila the Hun. Now, this is, like, one of the most vicious warlords in the history of humanity. Right. Including, in this envoy, was Pope Leo I. Hmm. And Pope Leo I was the point man of this negotiation. Now, did he go while he was Pope? Yes. Okay. Which is interesting. Interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> but Pope Leo at first went out there and talked with Attila the Hun. They had a big summit or whatever. Attila the Hun really liked the Pope and was like, you know what? This guy's all right. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm going to stop my, my shit. Yeah. And that's honestly, they had no military might. They were never going to stop Attila the Hun if he decided he wanted to take Rome. They were yeah. never going to stop him. Pope Leo the first went out there and was just like, "Well, let me see what I can do." And he worked out a deal, <laughs> and it kept it kept it kept the Catholic Church alive. Yeah, no shit. And it kept Rome at least not Hun, not Hun, Hunized, not uh, Hunned, Hungarianized. Sure. Now the Hungarians aren't really the Huns, even though a lot of people claim that they are. Anyways, that's my first guy. That's pretty good. That's and really when you good. get into his like his all the other shit going on. He's he's like a really like a religious leader and whatnot. He had a lot of a lot of what we know as Catholicism today is because of this guy. Because of the decisions that he was making back when there really weren't a lot of structure in place for the church. So That's awesome. That was a good That's a one. That's a pretty interesting one. Definitely. Anyways, what else do you have today, sir? Okay. Have you ever heard of John Landis Mason? I feel like I may have, but I'm going to say no. Maybe. I don't know if people really understand how much this guy changed the game. Sure. He was born in 1832 in New Jersey. Okay. He was an American tinsmith and patentee of the metal screw on lids for fruit jars, which big which became known as the mason jar. Oh. This guy invented the mason jar. Now, why this was so important at the time is because he also invented the rubber seal that, like, stuck to the cap. And before that, people mostly used to keep their preservatives cold. Not cold, but fresh. They would use wax, like wax seals. And those were not reliable, and they would crack, and then food would get spoiled. And you couldn't really transfer food with wax seals because they would break through transportation and shit like that. So it caused a lot of problems, especially among, like, uh, settlers and shit like that. People that are moving around a lot. Sure. So the mason jar became popular real quick, and the reusable airtight rubber seals made it a lot easier to transfer food. And many foods were now available that were basically done during the uh, fucking seasons. Sure. Right? Like you can't save a vegetable... Yes, exactly. So now they were available all year round at this point. So this guy really changed the game for a lot of shit. And what's also interesting, too, is this would have been like right at the impetus of the Western expansion. Yes. People were taking their wagons west. So all of a sudden you can have a more balanced diet on your trips. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. That is John Landis Mason. Sorry, I was a little choppy. That was a really um, good one. Yeah. And he, he's a smart guy. Definitely. Now, they probably could have used his brain power out there in the West. Probably. Because there were some <laughs> issues going on. People traveling West, they didn't, they only recognized like meat and grain as food. Like if they were out in the wild, like they wouldn't eat nuts or they mm-hmm. wouldn't eat shit. And like with the Donner party, they got stranded in the Sierra Nevadas and they technically got stranded in California. And they didn't recognize that they could eat like some of the plants that were in the area. And they resorted to yeah. eating each other. And it's like there were Native American tribes in the area that were completely fine. And that's who ended up yeah. saving a big chunk of the people where these tribes had brought them in. And what's kind of interesting about the Wild West was they didn't really, a lot of them didn't get into like the paper economy for a while. Like they were still trading like food and yeah. shit like that, fur, all like all the way up until like the mid 1800s. But after well, even that. after that, yeah, yeah. It, it just depended because some of that was still Spanish territory. A lot of it was unclean. Yeah. There really wasn't a solid economic system in place. I feel like if they had more of these mason jars out there, they probably would have lasted a little bit longer. Definitely. And the Donner Party was only one. I guess there were several expeditions that just got really messy, like in Utah and shit. Where sure. it's like, oh my God, this is a fucking nightmare <laughs> scenario. <laughs> but people were a lot tougher back then. I want to go out west. I, I really do. I have never been out west. I haven't either. The farthest west that I've been has been Springfield, Illinois. 
Nice. I did go to the Capitol, though. Like, I saw where Abe Lincoln, like, the building that Abe Lincoln got started in as a state representative. Right. It was pretty cool. Like, even the, the old state legislator, leg, legislature, that building was really cool. I got a picture of myself and, like, the state house representatives that Abe Lincoln would have nice. worked in. It was pretty cool. That reminds me, I want to tell you, I started listening to a book. I kind of wanted to get into something historical, and I found this. Sure. Awesome Abraham Lincoln um, kind of like biography on Audible. It's called The Fury Trial. Okay. It's pretty good so far. It's about Abraham Lincoln. So if you ever want to read a good Abraham Lincoln book, check that out. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And if you guys ever want to watch a really accurate uh, Abraham Lincoln biographic movie, there's a good one out there. I saw it on HBO Max. I don't know if it's still up there or not. It's called Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter. <laughs> That was pretty. It was pretty good. I think like, I've seen it. It's ridiculous. It was pretty good. But no, the the movie Lincoln is absolutely phenomenal. With see, Daniel, that's got your boy Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis, who's the best living actor right now. Yeah. See, I haven't watched that one. It's fantastic. It's see, absolutely I'm more incredible. of a more of an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter type. You, yeah, you definitely are. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we'll try to get back on track with this. Do you have anything more with? The Mason guy? No, you can go ahead. That was a pretty good one. And we're going to find a lot of people. You never, you wouldn't even think that the Mason jar had been such an influential invention, but it really started up modern day preservation, basically. Mm -hmm. Now, this is going to be my complicated one. And this one is really, it's like two or three people combined. I was going to start talking about one guy, and then I was like, well, I can't really talk about this guy without this other guy. And then I'm like, well, it all kind of traces back to this third guy. (laughs) This third guy is named John Ruskin, R-U-S-K-I-N. John Ruskin was a Victorian era era area a Victorian era academic living from 1819 until 1900 and this guy was like an Oxford professor he was most known as a professor of fine arts at Oxford but like the guy that you mentioned that brown guy mm-hmm. he was a into a ton of different disciplines and as yeah. an academic he just got into a bunch of different shit now the reason why I'm bringing this guy up is well he is a weirdo like you look at his his scholarly pursuits are kind of all over the place. Like he gets into really hardcore in the art, but he also gets into philosophy and religion. And uh, he has a lot of political opinions as to how the world should operate basically, which is why I'm bringing him up. But he was also highly visible back then. Like he would give these lectures and he would have to give a lecture twice because he would give one to his students and then he'd have to give one to the public. He was that popular as a professor. And he was really known as a weirdo though. Like they thought that he was like, he had a couple screws loose. Now he was definitely, and people are going to argue that he wasn't, he was a hundred percent a pedophile, a hundred percent a pedophile. And he was really weird about a lot of that type of shit. Now we don't really have evidence as to if he was actually doing stuff, but he was definitely interested in that type of thing. And he was a hardcore elitist in terms of as a British scholar, believing that the British empire was like the greatest thing of all time, basically, which I mean, we've seen how the British conquests have happened. There's a lot of people that are just like, they call them Anglophiles, where they pretty much believe that the English people are the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And this guy is, in no small part, part of that group as well. Sure. Now, he had a lot of influence back then, because even in Victoria, England, back in the 19th century, that type of ethnocentrism was huge in that area. Like, everybody still thought that the English were the greatest thing of all time, and America was kind of like... Like a, like a stain on their image or whatever and shit like that. So his biggest obsession was with Plato's book called The Republic. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I actually have it at home. And I stopped reading these his, these philosophy type books because all these guys, they got these great opinions. I was like, oh, he's so smart. But they were all living in an extreme privilege where it's like Plato never had to do a goddamn thing for himself. He lived on the backs of everybody else, basically. Mm-hmm. So sure, he got the time to write all these histories and these opinions, but his opinions don't really apply to everybody else. Sure. Like just about... Whatever. So Plato's big opinion is that you need a a strong, centralized, elite ruling class to basically create a utopia. And that utopia is impossible to establish without that. Sure. So this John Ruskin guy being where he came from, and he came from money himself, and being a scholar, a lifelong scholar who never really worked, as we would understand work to be. He believed in that shit heavily, and his work and his speeches and his influence permeated throughout English culture back then. Now, one of his students who became very influential as well is a guy that you may have heard of, Cecil Rhodes. Have you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholarship? Yeah. A Rhodes Scholar. You're a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah, yep. This guy was born in, I believe, the 1850s, and he didn't die. He died right around, like, 1902, I believe. So he didn't live much longer than this John Ruskin guy. Mm. He got fired up listening to John Ruskin's speeches at Oxford. He was a student of his, his lectures and whatever. Got fired up, huh? He really liked the the the, the Anglophile aspect of the speeches. Now, with Cecil Rhodes, he is known as 
a basically a South African diamond miner. And he's a big reason why like the whole apartheid thing happened in South Africa, where it's basically like segregation. Mm-hmm. He's a big reason why, because he was like a big time force back then, like a political force and whatever. And he was really rich because he was doing the diamond mining down there. Sure. The Rhodes Diamond Company or whatever the fuck it was called ended up making a ton of money. Now where Cecil Rhodes gets ridiculous is with his estate, he was able to establish and it still exists to this day, a scholarship fund for postgraduate students where they give out like a hundred, I think it's 104 scholarships every year to postgraduate students. And it exists, it's set up so they can exist in perpetuity. So there's so much money and whatever this fund is, they can pay for 104 students to continue on into graduate school. Mm -hmm. It's a very prestigious scholarship to earn. Now with this guy, I could get into so much more with Cecil Rhodes, but basically he ended up starting on the advice of this John Ruskin guy, a group called the round table group, which is an early example of a secret society where it's like a group of ruling people. And he was very close with the Rothschild as well. Hmm. It's a group of ruling financial elites trying to basically control the world, basically. So this is what the Roundtable Group was. And basically, the, the, the function of the Roundtable Group ends up becoming what the CFR became. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the same people are kind of involved. Now, Cecil Rhodes would have been dead by the time the CFR would have come into whatever, but it's a very similar group. Now, the third guy I got to talk about is a 20th century scholar, an American scholar named Carol Quigley. Have you ever heard of this guy before? Hmm. He was an academic at Georgetown University, and he was known because when he was doing his research, he recognized the fact that this roundtable group that Cecil Rhodes established under the influence of John Ruskin is 100% controlling the financial structure of not only the American economy, but almost the world economy, almost the world economy. And he was able to look at just just how the money trail flowed through different banks and different corporations and who were on board seats and whatever. He's able to map it out pretty well. He was doing this in the 1960s. What makes Carol Quigley interesting is that he got all this stuff right. But his personal opinion as an academic is that we should let them, we should let the conspiracy work its way through because it's going to create the best society. Hmm. So he basically identified these, this elite ruling class and was like, we should actually go with them. We should, the British Empire should basically be the ruling class of the world and we got to stick with them. Now, why he is a very influential person that's always heard about is one of his students back in the 60s was a guy named William Clinton. Hmm. Have you ever heard of him? <laughs> Oh, yes. William Clinton cites Carol Quigley as his academic mentor back then. Now, we don't know how close the connection actually was because this guy, this Carol Quigley guy, ended up dying in the early 70s, I believe. Mm. But even in Bill Clinton's speech, he would, like, back when he was running for president the first time, he would cite Carol Quigley's quotes in terms of his political views. Mm-hmm. So we've got a politician who was known for trying to be, claiming to be basically a liberal Democrat uniter type, heavily influenced by a guy that clearly advocated for Anglo elitism across the globe. Right. Which is really weird. It's really weird to see how Very, that all ties together. Really weird. But then you look when you look at the policies that are implemented back in the Clinton administration, it kind of plays into that. Sure. Even if it's not overt, even if it's not clear cut, visible, when you look at what's actually going you on. Read between the lines. Exactly. That's why I believe Carol Quigley is really important to talk about. Now, what's also weird about Mr. Bill Clinton is guess what kind of scholarship he was a recipient of? Rhodes. That Rhodes Scholarship <laughs> Program. So, weird. there's a lot of connections being drawn there. It is very yeah. weird when you map it all out. Now, there are going to be other people. I wasn't able to verify this one, but there are other people that claim that Nancy Pelosi was also a student of Carol Quigley. I was not able to verify that, but I've seen it thrown out there before hmm. that she was a student of his as well, which kind of would make sense. That would make sense. But... It is really weird, and I, I was going to do Carol Quigley, and then I was going to do Cecil Rhodes, but it really is this John Ruskin guy that I talked about first. He's the guy that started it all. That really got the ball moving. Now, he's not even the first person to talk about this type of thing, mm-hmm. and he was almost an advocate of communism in certain ways. Now, I don't know where the hell his actual spectrum landed, but he even created his own little secret society where it was like the Order of St. George or something or something weird, and they still exist today, and it's still like, it's, it tries to function as like a utopia with a strong centralized map that runs the show basically right and it really doesn't do a whole lot <laughs> but <laughs> i guess he had it going and i guess it's still going today so so that's mine that's uh john ruskin carol quigley and cecil rhodes all of which are you can you can find a lot of weird shit with these guys. maybe somehow they're connected to sir thomas brown i wouldn't say that i feel like thomas <laughs> brown was more of a curious intellectual this john ruskin guy was crazy he was, he a was a, uh thomas brown was a professor for very for many years that doesn't surprise me no, he didn't. I don't think he was a doctor. I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of kids are getting fucked up with these guys. Yeah, there's some bad definitely. shit going on, especially with John Ruskin. But definitely. Anyways, it that is was a good one. It is kind of interesting how that all ties together. Weird connections. And you can read about that. And I did my own connections. I didn't really take this word for word, but uh, "Rule by Secrecy" by Jim Mars. You can read about that story just a little bit. 
Yeah, no. you, you you gave me that book. Yeah, I was kind of drawing my own connections as well throughout that, just based on what I what I, what else I've researched about these guys. So yep. there's a lot going on there. Anyways, what else do you have? You ever heard of Fritz Haber? F R I T Z. Yes. Can't say that I have. Fritz Haber was born in Breslau, Prussia. Okay. Now Rohrklaw, Poland. I think that's how you say that. He was born in 1868. Now he took an early interest in chemistry, and he basically studied chemistry for the majority of his life. Sure. Uh, he was eventually appointed professor professor of physical chemistry and electrochemistry at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology sometime after he graduated. Now, at the time, scientists were a little worried that we weren't going to be able to produce enough food in the 20th century for the rapid population growth that was going on. Sure. And Fritz became pretty concerned with that as well. A quick bit from the SmithsonianMagazine.com. I know you don't like Smithsonian, but... Well, the reason why I don't like real quick is because of those guys. Those guys were also involved with the Smithson family. Oh, no who shit. Was, who was an Englishman who never even visited the United <laughs> States but established a Smithsonian yeah. Preserve America. Yeah, I think you like, told what me... What the fuck is up with that? Anyways, I'm sorry. That shit's annoying, yeah. But, um, so, but they knew that nitrogen is absolutely crucial plant life right yes and human life and they knew that earth's supply of usable quantities of nitrogen were quite limited sure so haber discovered a way to convert the nitrogen gas in the earth's atmosphere into a compound that could be used in a fertilizer according to valclave smill a global agricultural historian at the university of manitoba in winnipeg the haber bosch process which uh carl bosch which was haber's brother-in-law they came up with this process of synthesizing in manufacturing ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen and was likely yeah so that was the process they synthesized and manufactured ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen and it basically it basically helped mass produce a bunch of crops and shit that farmers can like spray on shit and it basically fed half the world's population and it's still being used today that's really incredible that's some really good shit right there yes it's probably the most important technological innovation of the 20th century because it really brought billions of people from starvation basically yeah and when you look at like the dust bowl that happened in the early 20th century maybe this was part of the reason why it stopped yes i don't know yeah but it's i didn't know this guy did this yeah that's really interesting and you really it is really weird and you can read about even in some of my conspiracy books you can read about the evolution of food but mm-hmm. it's not like this was a good all told this was a good innovation Yes, definitely. There's a long article on this guy at SmithsonianMagazine.com. All right. You can get into it more if you want, but... Yeah, we got to be kind of skeptical of the, the, sure. the Smithsonian, but overall, that was a really interesting uh, That was a really interesting breakdown. What was that guy's name again? His name is Fritz Haber. Okay. And then he goes Prussian? Prussian, yes. Yes, okay. That's probably... We probably got... You got a little bit of Polish in you, don't you? Yes. Maybe we got some Prussian blood in us. I don't know. We might. Yeah, but he basically created the way of mass-producing the amount of food that we're able to produce today. Very interesting. Very good. Yes. Do you have anything else for this episode? Yeah, I have two more, but they're quick. They're okay. small. I was trying to think. I'm not going to do any more. I think that's all I got for this episode. So what else do you have? So this guy, he's a little more well-known, but I think a lot of people forget about him. Sure. You ever heard of Jonas Salk? Yes. Yes. He was the guy that created the polio vaccine. Yep. This was huge because at the time it was a big problem. And what's even more amazing about him is he never made a patent for it. So nobody else was ever able to produce it. Wow. And he never earned one dollar from it. Yeah. He wanted it made as quickly as possible to get out to the masses and he never took any profit from making the drug. Definitely. So that's really good. Yeah. Incredible. And polio, that's obviously one thing you definitely have to be vaccinated against because it's like you don't you don't really have a shot. If you get polio, it's over. Now, didn't he, is he the one that tested it first on his son? He tested it on his entire family. Holy shit. And what they actually did was um, they gave, he he wanted to prove that, was it the whole vaccine or a component of the vaccine? I can't remember what it was, but he wanted to prove that it wasn't going to affect the human body the way that they thought it would. So he literally gave it to himself and his entire family and all of them were completely fine. Wow. Yeah, so that's a that's a hero right there. That's how you know you know your shit. Exactly, you're gonna put your entire family through it. Well, I feel like I would want to be my first test subject if I were to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. There's not nearly as much risk shooting yourself with something as opposed to yeah, definitely. Anyways, that's a really interesting one. You know, what? I'm gonna do one more. 
Sure. This one's this guy. He ended up getting kind of controversial in recent years because a lot of people, like a lot of terrorist groups, have been using his name. Hmm. Have you ever heard of a guy named Charles Martel? I saw this guy on a couple of the lists. And what's funny is I've been reading that book that you got me, The Power and Thrones, by uh, what the I can't remember. Dan name Brown. Is. No, Dan Brown's the what's funny. Dan is Jones. Dan, Dan Jones. Yeah, Dan Brown is the is the uh, the Angels and Demons writer. Yeah, and the Da Vinci Code. Yep. And I was thinking I was gonna say Dan Brown too. So <laughs> you and I were both thinking <laughs> the same thing. Anyways, Power and Thrones by Dan. Jones. Excellent historical breakdown of the Middle Ages. I was reading that a couple nights ago and Charles Martel popped up. Now, when the Muslim Empire popped up, and Muslim isn't really the religious term, it's more the culture term because Islam is the religion. Yes. Muslim is a group of people that follow Islam, essentially. Mm-hmm. And back in the 7th century, the followers of Muhammad were Muslims. Now, they spread to Persia, which is now modern-day Iran. Their religion took hold, but the culture really didn't take hold in Iran nearly as much, which is part of why part of why Iran is such a weird country in terms of our geopolitical climate today. It's all because it really isn't in league with the Arab population, the Muslim population that popped up back in that time. Sure. It is really weird, and reading that book is incredible seeing just how all these moving pieces come together. Anyways, the Muslim Empire, however, they popped up and they got really strong really quickly it's like all of a sudden this guy has seen the shit in the cave and all of a sudden they got this huge ass army that pops up and they're just storming across africa they're storming across the middle east they storm up through spain into france within a hundred years of muhammad dying they go that far Damn. And it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous how how widespread it gets so quickly. Now it stops in France at the Battle of Tours, which was organized by a Frankish. I guess they call him a statesman. He was a Frank, so French, named Charles Martel was the leader of this resistance. And they were pretty much. He was like a. He claimed to see that he was like a holy warrior trying to protect Christianity against the the expanse of this unknown group, basically. And the Battle of Tours was really a turning point in terms of the Muslim expansion. Now the Muslim leader was a caliph of the Umayyad Caliphate named, I think his name was like Abd al-Rahman or something, something like that. I can't remember the guy's name, but they were storming across France. Like they had already stormed up through the Iberian Peninsula, through Spain. They had pretty much, they were holding that area pretty strong. They had a really strong backing in Morocco as well, in South and North Africa. And they ran in the Charles Martel and that, that was the end of it. He beat them in the, at the Battle of Tours and they immediately fell out of France and they never once had a strong holding in France ever again. They pretty much, that stopped the expanse of the Muslim Empire. Wow. Now, this guy, he kind of, they, they claim that he pretty much defended, like, if they would have lost the battle, like, all of Europe would have gone Muslim. Just based on how quickly Muslim or Islam was expanding across the rest of the world, basically. We don't know if that was really going to be the case or not, because they also suffered some losses against the Byzantine Empire. They couldn't, they could never take Constantinople. It took them a very long time to get in there. It wasn't until the Ottomans took Constantinople, where Constantinople became an Islam center. The Muslims could never get in there, basically. They can they couldn't beat Constantinople. They also couldn't beat Charles Martel. Couldn't get over the walls. Yeah. Well, that's literally what it was. But the Charles Martel guy ended up founding a dynasty that we've talked about on the show before called the Carolingian dynasty, which is what Charlemagne stems from and a bunch of these early ancient Holy Roman emperors, basically, in the Holy Roman Empire. He's where it all starts. Now, these days, he's like a... Like a Western, like like the far right gets really into him. They're like, oh, he's he's the big ass folk hero of that. So people do like some bad stuff sometimes mm-hmm. with his like name. That's why his name isn't really popular these days. But overall, he's a very interesting. It's a very interesting. Is Tate Martell a descendant of this guy? Probably not, because Tate Martell kind of sucks. Yeah, he does. Like this guy would not want him as an offspring. But it's 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 funny how he's just jumped around from school to school <laughs> and, and he just can't start anywhere. You have no <laughs> he idea, sucks, man. Because my father gets into these different football players, and Tate Martell is one of them. I've been hearing about this motherfucker forever. This is fucking the, 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 the breakdown. My father gets into this just guy. just a little shit, man. Yeah, he didn't amount to much. I think he's finally retired. I think he's done with football is completely. He done? I think so. He needs to be. <laughs> I think he threw like six college football passes in his career or something, yeah. like four different schools. And they're not even that good. Exactly. Anyways, what else do you have today, sir? I have one more. Awesome. And this guy's name is James Harrison. You know who James Harrison is? Yeah, he played uh, outside linebacker for the Steelers back in the 2000s. Yes, but this is a different James Harrison. Oh, okay. James Harrison. This guy is still alive today, I believe. Interesting. I think he's in his like 70s or 80s. Okay. I can't, can't remember how old he is. But his blood contains an extremely rare antibody that can use to treat rhesus disease. I've heard of this before. That's I think I've you, heard of this. That's how you say it. Rhesus. R-H-E-S-U-S. Rhesus. I think that's how you say that. The disease is a condition where a pregnant woman's blood actually starts attacking her unborn baby cells, and it normally always ends in death, and if it 
doesn't, it results in really bad brain damage for the baby. But normally, unfortunately, it ends up in deaths. But Harrison's remarkable gifts, um, he started giving blood after the age of 14 after he needed to receive blood when he had a chest surgery. So after he went through that, he decided, you know what, I'm going to start giving blood. And when he started giving blood, they found that this guy had this antibody in his blood. He's he's donated blood over a thousand times, and he has saved over two million newborn babies' Holy lives. Shit. What are the chances that they found this? That that's it, that's just unbelievable. It's mind blowing. But could you imagine? Like he, he basically just gives blood every day, or or as much as you can give blood. I don't know how long you're supposed to wait after giving blood, but I'm pretty sure you can go quite often. Are we sure this guy isn't Jesus reincarnated? He I could mean, he could this be is ridiculous. <laughs> but he's. I don't know how old this article was, so he's probably saved a hell of a lot more people since this. This is from Quora.com. That might be one of the single most interesting things that we've ever talked about on the show. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This exactly. one dude just now, has this one antibody. He should be replicating and hoping that he passes his gene down. Yeah, definitely. Man, that's incredible. James Harrison. <laughs> and this is not the line where... <laughs> not the, the linebacker. It's not the linebacker. Okay, so if you were going to talk about him, I would have walked out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, still mad about that Colt McCoy, Colt McCoy <laughs> jo- Josh Cribbs hit. Yeah, that really fucked up Colt McCoy. Like that, they the Browns mishandled that because they mishandled a bunch of injuries back in that era. Colt McCoy was one of them. He got fucked up. Like I can't imagine that guy doesn't see. Have the see, thing, he's still around. Though. The, the thing is, is like the hit wasn't even that bad. The Josh Cribbs hit was a hell yeah. of a lot worse. Yeah. than the Colt McCoy hit. If it wasn't Colt McCoy. It, honestly, you really think it would have been even flagged? He was, and he was fined so much more for that Colt McCoy hit than he was Josh Cribbs. Well, the real problem is it wasn't even the hit; it was how the Browns handled it. Like he, Colt McCoy has to have like serious brain damage now, not because I'm of sure. the hit, but because of how he how the, he was handled afterwards. <laughs> like even Colt McCoy's dad was about to sue the Browns over it. It was that was that bad. <sighs> Anyways, James Harrison, the the blood donor, is a real hero, though. Definitely. Can't debate that. He has changed the world. Anyways, I think that probably wraps up this week's discussion. That was a pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. We could do we can do more. We could definitely do more with this. I feel like you, we could go on forever. But that was uh, less influential people who had a pretty big impact on history. If you know any less influential people that also had a very big impact on history, please tweet us at 30 in the comment on our Facebook page. And yes, please comment on the Facebook page as well. If you believe that you have had an impact on history and you're lesser known, also please tweet us. We might be able to bring you on the show. Yes, let, let, let us you tell know. You, let you tell your story. Definitely. Anyways, uh, do you have anything else for this episode? Nope, that's it for me. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. Peace. And, I mean, I have to say it is 2 o'clock on Tuesday, April 10th. 2, two o'clock in the morning on April 10th. I think it's April 12th. Is it April 12th? Yeah. Shit. Wow, I'm like two days behind. <laughs> Anyways, I have to say that it's 2 o'clock on April 12th, 2022, and Baker Mayfield is still a Cleveland Brown. Unreal. I, mean, I told you he would until after the draft. Now. I'm telling you. The pe- teams are going to wait till the draft to get Baker Mayfield. Yeah. Now, what I can't figure out, have you looked at what the Browns have been doing? Because they got Watson, obviously, which I still don't know what I, how I feel about that. Yeah, that's a weird one. And then it, they... If they, It wouldn't have been ridiculous if they just didn't guarantee all that money. Well, the reason why they did that, and... Because they set a very bad standard here. They set an excellent standard if you're the Browns. They <sighs> set a terrible standard for everybody else. <laughs> because... We're going to set aside Deshaun Watson's legal issues for a second because sure. I think he, I kind of think he did most of the shit that he's being accused of. I don't really know. I haven't looked into it. It doesn't look good. But anyways, set that aside for a second. That fully guaranteed deal, what people don't realize about a fully guaranteed contract like that is that a large chunk of that contract, now some people are going to say 80% of that goes immediately in the escrow. Mm-hmm. Meaning you're paying $230 million, like 180 of that goes immediately into an escrow account. You want to know who doesn't have $180 million sitting around right now? Who? Mike Brown, the owner of the Bengals. <laughs> All he owns, his entire net worth is tied up in the team. Mm-hmm. He might have some cash. He's got some cash. Like the team's worth a billion dollars. He's got some cash. Mm-hmm. None of that's liquid. Okay. None of it's liquid. Sure. So... When Joey Burrow demands his contract, he can point to Deshaun Watson and say, hey, you know, yeah, I'm worth a lot I mean. more than that. Yeah. I went to the Super Bowl, and he could he could just be a decent quarterback. He's going to demand more than that. Sure. 
Mike Brown in no way, shape, or form is going to have $180 million just to dump right. in an escrow account. Right. Jimmy Haslam, on the other hand, with his Pilot Flying J company and just the fact that he's got a lot of liquid cash because he's pretty much divested from everything else and his main focus is the Browns right now. He's got cash just sitting around doing nothing. You sure. know what I mean? So it's a lot easier for him to do that. Ravens are the same exact way, and their owner, Steve Bashotti, has been pissed off because they got Lamar Jackson's extension coming up. Yeah. Of course, you know, Lamar Jackson's going to be He's going to want He's going to want it all right now, basically. Yep. And he's if he hits the open market, he's going to get it. He's going to get Someone's going to get desperate and pay him. It's unreal. These football contracts are just getting insane, man. But the Browns set a, they set a standard, and I think a big reason why they did that is just to fuck with the division because they know that Steve Bishotti probably doesn't have that liquid cash, and we know Mike Brown doesn't. Right. So. Wow. No, I really like the meat streak at Cedar Point, and that's just because Cedar Point yeah. didn't have anything like <clears throat> the Beast. You know, but I do hear what they changed mean streak into is unbelievable. Like it's See, ten times better. <laughs> I haven't I haven't ridden it. I haven't ridden it yet either, but I want to. I haven't been to Cedar Point since twenty seventeen. And when I was there, the mean streak had been closed and they were working on the new coaster. Mm. And I used to ride the mean streak five, six times. Yeah, I'd it go, was I'd fantastic. go by myself. I didn't care. I loved it. And I walked up to that ride and I just went. Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> you seriously said that? Yes. Uh, like from The Godfather. Sure. It, it hit me hard. It was kind of sad. Yeah. It, like it, it is sad because... I thought it was yeah, a great ride. It was a fantastic ride. I, I peed my pants on it one time, even though it wasn't my fault. We got... I mean, it stalled, and we were... Oh, you, Jesus. Yeah. You're, you know when, um, <clears throat> right before you got into the station, it stopped a little ways back? Sure. Yeah, we got stuck right there for probably like a half hour. Sure. And I had to pee so bad after the ride. I just could not hold it anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was like 14. But the beast, though, the coast is actually part of the news story. And he wrote, I think, like seven or eight books. Okay. He wrote a uh, really famous book. I can't remember what it's called. <clears throat> God damn it. I, I fucking... <laughs> God, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't write that part of the no, I didn't. story down. <laughs> no, but it, it it's it doesn't really matter. And he was basically every he 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 did so much shit. He was a uh, 